All right, we welcome to the program David Harsanyi. He is a senior writer at the National Review, and he is the author of a book called First Freedom, A Ride Through America's Enduring History with the Gun. You can get that at Amazon.com. David, welcome to the show. I appreciate you making time for us today. You doing well? I'm doing well. Good. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. So you had a a piece uh, the other day about uh, the coronavirus. Um, You claim, or you say in this piece, I don't claim to possess any special insight into the matter, which is why I wanted you on, (laughs) because you have no insight uh, into the matter. Uh, So why did you feel the need to, I don't know, come out and write this piece about how you don't know anything about the thing that you're writing? That's usually not something editors would let you do, right? wrote that was because so many other people do pretend to have insight into the matter so <laughs> sort of negation or i guess you'd call it but uh i mean my, the larger point of the piece it's not really even a piece it was just a blog post was that i uh you know i just wish there were bet more grown-ups out there frankly and um i don't think we have a media that can be trusted before this began some of the glee and some of the uh hysteria surrounding coronavirus, or what I think is hysteria at least. Again, I have no special insight or anything. It's just, uh, call it an educated guess, or, or maybe not even educated, but uh, is, uh, seems a little bit politically charged uh, to me and seems that people are almost hopeful that bad things will happen to help their political fortunes. Terrible thing to say, but that's what I feel. And I uh, just wanted to point that, that out, and also that I didn't think the president was acting in a presidential way by tweeting out ridiculous things when there are immunocompromised Americans and older Americans who, at the very least, uh, are scared about this and, and, and need to be reassured. So I was just wondering where all the grown-ups were, and I, I'm not exactly sure where they are yet, even now. Yeah, you're right that there's a vast space between panic-mongering and flippant dismissal. Um, and it seems like, though, in our society, we just get the feast or the famine. I think that's those are the options, it seems like, particularly when it comes yeah. to this kind of coverage. I mean, yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt. So much hysteria about everything all the time. And I'm not exactly sure how that's helpful, even if we are in for something that is, is going to be very bad. And obviously, it's not good, no matter how we look at it. Coronavirus thing is, is, is something we need to deal with. Um, typically, I would say that we overreact in the sense, not that we overreact in our pre- preparation, but that we overreact in our media and the way we talk about these sorts of things. Um, yeah, I mean, I think there's a gigantic space between this being dismissive of something like this and being hysterical about it. And uh, it would be nice if people could stake out some some spot there in that massive space in between those two extremes. So I recall I was reading your piece and I, I just recalled there was a bit on Saturday Night Live years and years ago. Jerry Seinfeld was the guest host and he's playing an anchor, one of the two anchors on a you know local newscast. And the entire newscast is simply hyping what's going to kill you. You know, it's a household item. It's uh, in your garage. It's uh, on your way to work or school. And they never tell you what the danger is or they never pay off the tease. It's just a succession of escalating teases about how you're going to die. And I mean, you've been in media a long time and, you know, this is sort of how the media operates, right? As a reporter and columnist, you you write the big headline and then the inverted pyramid, you know, you get all the information up front and all, but the payoff is never really what the headline screams, right? This is is uh, sort of the standard operating procedure. So why should we be surprised now? Right. I mean, that's always been true, 
right? I mean, uh, you know, that the if it bleeds, it leads, all of that stuff. Yeah. But, um, you know, one of the things about social media, and I, I, in some sense, I'm a big fan, and in some sense, I think it's just a garbage, right. but <laughs> is that it helps connect us in ways that allow us to deal with things uh, that are big, better than in the old days when we didn't really know what was going on elsewhere with any sort of real specificity, right? So I can say, oh, we learn more about what's going on in Italy. We learn more about what's going on here. We connect the dots. It helps us prepare, you know, in, in ways that perhaps we weren't able to do before. But really all it has done in my view is create more hysteria and panic. I don't know. First of all, we don't know what's go really going on simply because some doctor in Italy tweets something out. But yet, you know, it's spread across all of uh, social media by people who find some reason, political reason to latch on to the worst, you know, the most hysterical person or the most alarmed person. It doesn't mean that I'm not, again, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be alarmed. I'm just saying I don't feel like that's a full view of it. So what what I'm trying to say is, I guess, is that the, the social media and the reporters on social media put a lot of, they take the worst thing that they can find and they spread it to millions of people in ways that perhaps it wouldn't have even happened when we had a more centralized media. I'm not sure that that's a good thing. I, obviously, I'm working through this myself to some extent. Sure. But w w we'll see how it ends up. Like, so I heard someone yesterday say that it's a horrible thing, you know, that like 10% of, of people who get this are going to die. That's a massive number, it's mm -hmm. a massive amount of people. If that doesn't come true, should that person ever be on media? Should he ever be interviewed again? Should he ever be put forward again? I don't think so, but I suspect he will be anyway, if you know what I mean. Yeah, well, and it, it, so you're talking about a couple things, right? There, there, there's the gatekeeper aspect that the traditional media used to, that role used to be played by traditional media, right? In the old days, and when you talk about centralized, uh, centralized media, there was pros and cons to that, right? Like the pro is that it, it helps to filter out some of the garbage, but the con would be uh, that some good stuff doesn't get out either because, you know, the gatekeepers don't want it right. out. Um, and social media in reverse. It's, you know, everything gets out there, <laughs> garbage included. And what we lack now is any kind of context to put anything into perspective. All we see are these, yeah, the 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 loudest voices uh, get the most retweets. Um, and that's not necessarily reality, but I, I like, I, I there was a line you had here where you said social media could have been immensely beneficial in helping navigate the virus. And I guess I find myself lamenting what could have been as well when it comes to social media. It turns out everybody with their own printing press might not be the best way to keep everybody informed after all. I, I don't know. <laughs> right. Well, you know, to some extent, I like it. So when Paul Krugman says something, I just tweeted, you know, he's, he made some remark, right? So I get to go on and say, well, that's not, you know, you're missing this aspect, or that's not true, or whatever. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's, that's a the good part of social media, that we get to, it's almost like an immediate, it's fact-checked. So my columns, I used to write columns when I first started out, and I wouldn't hear from anybody, maybe some of people would send me letters, etc. Um, but now it is automatically fact-checked, and sometimes people are right, and I'm wrong, and I miss something, whatever it is. Um, the problem is, though, that the blue check marks who are supposed to still be gatekeepers to some extent now accentuate the worst aspects of something and, and you know, and are not to be trusted. And that, that's, I think, a big problem. And that goes for social media. Uh, so I'm not talking about when I say that there are crazy things being 
thrown around in social media. I'm talking about blue checkmark folks doing it. I know they're actually white checkmarks, but you know what I mean. So, um, but I never actually, wait, I they're never actually problem. thought about that. They are actually white checkmarks on a blue background. I never considered that. Right. But anyway, we call them blue check marks. That's fine by me. We don't have to be that specific. It's like I, I'm not sure that the brown shirts were, very, you know, brown <laughs> shirts for sure or whatever. Um, but you know what I mean. These are people who have been, and I have one too, you know, for, you know, given a blue check mark. I don't know what that means. I guess it means I'm the real person writing under that name or whatever. Right. But the problem there is that uh, they're not trusted. You know, we can't really trust all of them either because there are a lot of grifters with blue check marks, et cetera. So I don't know. It's complicated. But the problem is that I think that mostly it, it, we, we breed hysteria on both sides. It's never a calming. There's never a calming effect where, where most blue check marks are like, listen, you know, this is a problem, but it's not going to be as terrible as we think. Or very rarely does that happen. Is part of that, though, due to the fact that a lot of reporters – um, just don't have the experience necessary to understand, like particularly in a case like this, this is some pretty, you know, involved information when it comes to mortality rates. You got statistics, you got, you know, medical, biological components. Like there's a lot of stuff here and reporters are not experts in, in this subject material, right? Yeah, it's a very good point. So you remember the whole Iran deal thing where Ben Rhodes said, you know, you know, he had created an echo chamber because you had 20-somethings who didn't understand anything, and they were just, you know, about the issues and were just told what to say, and they repeated it, et cetera. You know, this is even more complicated, and I think you have reporters that, you know, you, they're on a beat, and they just find the person who tells them what, you know, they find an expert who will tell them what they want to hear, and they just repeat what that person says. It's not, you know, I'm sure there are, it's like, uh, I'm sure there are are. are are doctors out there who, who who are more inclined to say, don't, you know, let's not panic over this, but they find the most panicky person because it's going to get them the most hits, mm-hmm. the most retweets from their fellow panicky, you know, reporters who like to hear, uh, you know, who want to hear that, that things are going to be bad for Donald Trump, et cetera. Listen, I, I don't think, I'm not one of these people who thinks that, that most reporters are out there, you know, hoping something bad happens. But there are definitely, there is a percentage, and it's not a small one, of reporters who I think hope that Donald Trump's election re- chances will be undermined by what's going on right now. Not so much the disease, but maybe the the economic, you know, the, the, the market falling, et cetera. So, and, and that's ugly. And uh, it used to be more subtle. But now I think because of social media, we see exactly how a lot of these people are. Right. I think that's the thing. It's Social media, particularly Twitter, has been just awful for the credibility of a lot of reporters at, you know, otherwise would have been, you know, respectable outlets and respected uh, reporters and journalists that you actually get, you get these peaks into their mentality. And what used to be probably reserved for the newsroom, gallows humor kind of, you know, snark now is out there on social media for everybody to see. And I don't know how you go about trusting somebody when you know all of their, you know, how their mind works on these types of stories. Like you mentioned in the piece, uh, Trump's Chernobyl, that, you know, people are wondering, is this Trump's Chernobyl, which I guess is worse than Trump's Katrina? Is, is that, I'm not sure what the scale is. Um, but So the first when I saw Trump's Katrina, I thought, oh, why, was there a failure of local and state leadership in response to a catastrophe? Because that was... Katrina. So I was wondering, like, yeah, I know. I mean, they blame 
listen, I was not a fan of George Bush to blame him for what happened to Katrina was ridiculous, right? But because people constantly just repeat it, repeat it all the time, it becomes a fact. Um, Chernobyl. I mean, we're saying this before, that Chernobyl column comes out when they were literally like one, there was like one death from coronavirus in the United States, right? right? Um, so this is Trump's Chernobyl, uh, you know, is, is just ridiculous. Like, you know, I, I saw there was this uh, global, I think I mentioned it in the piece I wrote, but there was some global index where it had us ranked like number one prepared for pandemics. But we still act like we're a third world country here <laughs> and that no one's going to be able to handle this thing. It's it's really uh, it's really off putting. But that's what The Washington Post thrives on. And as you just want to go back, it's not really the gallows humor. I mean, I, I, I at least I because I guess I you know, worked in newsrooms and stuff. I get that part of it. Yeah. It's, it's, it's when you realize that someone like, I mean, I'm just going to say someone like John Harwood, is that his name at CNN now? Yeah. You know, he uh, looks like a respectable newsman, like a traditional, like aesthetically speaking, he looks like someone I should trust, right? He is, you know, he's just a terrible partisan, you know, dishonest, just the worst kind of partisan. And yet when he's on TV, if I just watched him on TV, it would seem like someone who's really, you know, trying to find the truth and, and, and relay some, you know, hard truths to the American people. But when you see him on Twitter, it's a completely different experience. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of reporters that were just like that, meaning, you know, you read their writing and they, they seem like someone who is professional. But when you see him on Twitter, they seem like someone who's just a complete partisan. And that's, yeah. uh, that's a or unhinged. for anyone who's on Twitter. Yeah, and unhinged and uh, overly woke, I guess, uh, like this uh, – uh, this argument that has erupted, I guess this was from Chris Hayes, not that I'm arguing he looks the part of a credible journalist, but Chris Hayes over at MSNBC, uh, you know, asking whether or not the Wuhan virus is a racist term. Like, uh, I don't I, I thought they named viruses after where they came from. Like, was it the uh, dengue fever or Rocky Mountain spotted fever? Right. W- weren't these named after the areas where they erupted? Like Spanish flu. Right. Um, <laughs> but, you know. And that was unfair, actually, the Spanish flu, I think. But the the thing is, it actually is fair to say and to make sure that we know that China let this thing get out of hand because, it's, it's, you know, it's it's an authoritarian place where, where they don't are dishonest and wouldn't let, you know, didn't give us a heads up to prepare, et cetera. But, yeah, I mean, that, yeah, having a, a ridiculous argument over that. But at least Chris Hayes, I don't think... See, Chris Hayes, I don't think hides who he is, right? right? I, he's a like Sean Hannity doesn't hide who he is. I'm actually okay with that. I think all of us should be more transparent about what we believe in, and that would let us be able to judge uh, where everyone's coming from because everyone is biased in some sense uh, in how they view the world, and I think that that's okay. It's the people who pretend that they don't have a bias that bother me, and that who clearly do that bother me far far more than someone like Chris Hayes or Sean Hannity, who I know where they're coming from. David Harsanyi, he is a senior writer at National Review. You can read his work there. He's also the uh, author of a book, First Freedom, A Ride Through America's Enduring History with the Gun. And we appreciate your time, as always. Good to talk with you again, David. And uh, we hope to have you back soon. Anytime. Take care.